you have a Bible, you could maybe turn to Hebrews 4 uh, that we read together uh, from today. And in church today, we're, we're thinking of getting into heaven. And I was interested to learn in a recent YouGov poll, 54% of Britons don't believe that there is a heaven or a hell in this poll conducted in November 2021, so the figures could have changed slightly. In the UK, 60% of men and 48% of women do not believe there is a heaven or a hell after this life. And within this survey, there are some results that are striking. One is that only 47% of those who profess to be Christians believe in heaven and hell. Though they have the same Bible as we do, they don't believe its contents. Maybe they've never read it. Maybe their minister has taught them that there is no heaven or hell. But 47% of those who profess to be Christians don't believe in heaven or hell. Another striking finding is that it is older men who are more likely to say that they don't believe in heaven or in hell. Among the 60-plus males, 64% of them compared with a lot smaller number of those who are 16 to 24-year-olds denied that there was heaven or hell. Perhaps we think that the older generation brought up in some form of Sunday school, they would believe that there is heaven and hell, but not in this poll. And why is that perhaps? Is it that those older males, 60 plus, have hardened themselves over the years by suppressing their conscience, by rejecting any truth that they knew? They deny, many of them, that there is a heaven or a hell after this life. Heaven is the theme of this paragraph that we have read in chapter 4. It's described as, I have said, as rest eight times in this section. The writer has been exhorting the readers to keep going on in the Christian life as we thought of last Sunday morning. He's been using the psalm that we've been singing today, this refusal of Israel at the borders of the promised land to hear God's voice, to enter that land, to believe his promise. Their example He's exhorting us not to repeat. Their lack of faith, their lack of obedience has kept them out of the land of rest. He applies the rest then to the ultimate rest of heaven and exhorts us to be people of faith, people who live like Christians as we journey through this world. We want to think today of some important aspects of this heavenly rest that are mentioned in this paragraph. One is the nature of this heavenly rest. Heaven is described as a place of rest. This is a precious dimension to heaven. There are many aspects of heaven that are revealed to us in the Bible, but one is that it will be a place 
of rest and, and what a comfort for the McEwen family today. A place of worship, of love, of peace, but also of rest. Verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his or her works. So in heaven there will be an end of work. No more nine to five to put bread on our tables. We will rest and we will rest. In Revelation 14 and verse 13, this aspect of heaven is mentioned. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And we're to catch the, the, the big picture, the big connections to rest that, that we find in the Bible. And as we read the Bible, it, we are to, to read it within the, the big themes and whatever small little chapter or verse we are, whether it's reading about the temple or re- re- reading about uh, the priesthood, uh, we're to think of the big themes. The whole teaching of the Bible converges on that one word, that one chapter. So as we read of rest, the writer says here, we're to think of the, the big theme of rest stretching back to the very beginning of the world. And so the writer in verse 9 coins this word only found here in the whole of the Bible, Sabbath rest. It describes heaven to be like that rest of God in that creation week. When God on the seventh day rested from his work. His work was finished. His creative work was completed. And he rested from his work on the Sabbath day. And this is the rest. This is the my rest of Psalm 95. The rest of God that we enter into after this world. The rest of heaven. That Sabbath rest. And it's often been pointed out that in the six days of creation. We have the, the recurring phrase. And the morning was and the evening was the first day the second day, the third day. But there is no such phrase on the seventh day. That rest of God continues and it's that rest that we enter into after this world by faith. Fellowship with him. No sin, no death, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering. This is our hope as verse 3 indicates we who have believed enter that rest his works were finished from the foundation of the world this is what heaven will be rest we sometimes have false and wrong ideas of the heavenly rest we imagine ourselves perhaps it's just me maybe swinging on a hammock sitting on a cloud strumming a harp with a halo. But that is not the idea of rest in the Sabbath rest. When God ended his works, he continued 
to work in a certain sense, didn't he? And this what was Jesus' point in John 5 when he was rebuked by the Pharisees for healing on the Sabbath day, for doing a work of mercy on the Sunday, the day of rest. Jesus appeals to the example of his heavenly Father. Jesus says in, in John 5, from the very beginning of the world, my Father works on the Sabbath day. On the day of rest, he is active in sustaining the world and governing the world and works which are necessary. So we are to understand the Sabbath rest, the rest of heaven, to be a different type of activity, a different type of involvement, a different experience than, than what we, we manage here, though, though connected uh, to this experience. We will worship. We will serve. We will praise. We will dwell in the presence of the glory of God. Within all of us, there is the drive and the desire and the innate longing to rest. In the south of Ireland, uh, recently, they have experimented with a four-day working week. They, they are toying with, with this idea, and, and I've received some positive feedback from it that we can reduce our working week to four days to satisfy this innate longing within every human heart for rest. And this is what is promised through Jesus Christ. That by his blood and righteousness, after this life, we will enter the Sabbath rest of God. And that future Sabbath rest, by, by virtue of the, the word Sabbath rest being used here, should be reflected in how we live on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is not just to allow us time to, to set aside our work and recover our bodies it's not just time to, to pick up a, a good book and, and read it in the afternoons, but it's also an insight, a reminder, a taste of heaven that the time will come when we will put down our tools, when we will set aside our working boots and we will enter in to that heavenly Sabbath rest of God. And we're to adopt not just a negative approach to that. We're not just to think of the things which we don't do on this Sabbath day. We're to think of the positive activities that will characterize us in heaven. We will worship in heaven. And so we come together here to worship God collectively with one another to sing his praise and, and a morning and an evening service really helps my family to engage in this, this activity which will characterize us in heaven. And what a comfort for us who have lost loved ones, that our loved ones have entered into rest, that there is no more pain and no more tears and no more sorrow, and no more crying, but they have been taken from this world of agony and sin. And they have entered now into God's rest, that Sabbath rest 
that place of fellowship and peace. Many people look forward to retirement, but they discover that it is a false dawn. Many people complain that they're busier in retirement than they were in their work. Just because people have retired, they're given all these jobs and and it's an incredible, stressful time for people. The true rest, the glorious rest, will be heaven in the presence of God. The nature of the heavenly rest. Think secondly of the possibility of the heavenly rest. And, and this will really test your brain cells in verses 2 to 9. What is the argument of the writer here? And, and I'll try and get across to you as, as clearly as I can. You see, to talk about this heavenly rest, to tantalize us with this heavenly rest, to, to speak of the, the glories, the wonders, the, the amazingness of this heavenly rest, and then say to us, but you can't get there. That would be absolutely cruel. And so the writer addresses this point, that not only is there this rest from the seventh day of creation, but there's also the possibility the opportunity for us to enter into that rest. Adverts set before us the best, don't they? And showing us the cruises that are available. They don't take us away down into the little cabins down in the very base of the boat, but they show us the ones with sea views and, and balconies. It's only later as we go through the, the pricing list that we discover that's far beyond what we can afford. But here, the writer explains the rest, talks about the rest, and then he goes on to say, this rest, it's available, it's offered, it's promised in Jesus Christ. And he does it in two ways in this paragraph, verses 2 to 9. Firstly, he, he looks at the rebellion of Israel in verses 2 to 6, and he, he argues here that those people didn't enter into God's rest. God offered them rest. He promised them rest. But in verse 5, he says, They shall not enter my rest. Through their unbelief and their disobedience, they didn't enter the rest. And that means that there's empty seats in the rest. There's vacancies in God's rest. The, the whole rest that God promised to human beings is not occupied. That's the writer's argument here. There remains a rest that is promised to the people of God. You remember the parable of Jesus, of the great feast, and that the king went, went to great effort to, to provide a, a wonderful supper for his guests. And, and people were invited to this, but many declined. Many rejected the offer to, to come to this sumptuous meal. There were vacancies. There were seats. There was room in the great banquet. And, and the king wants to fill his house with people. And this is the idea in paragraph 2 to 6. The people were promised rest. The people were offered rest. But they didn't enter God's rest through unbelief 
and disobedience. His second argument is in verses 7 to 9. So the people entered the promised land. What the writer argues, this is not the ultimate rest. Because God speaks of his rest in Psalm 95. The writer argues, if if the ultimate rest was the land of Canaan, then God wouldn't have spoken through David 400 years later of another rest and of people entering into that rest. So he argues and concludes in verse number 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest. The offer of a Sabbath rest. The possibility of being in heaven, of dwelling in the presence of God. For the people of God. Some rebelled and didn't enter the rest. Others who entered the rest, it's not the ultimate rest, he argues, because of Psalm 95. So there remains the possibility on one occasion, I was privileged to, to go to an executive box down at Kingspan, uh, and it was a tremendous experience. And when I entered uh, the, the room there, there was uh, soup and sandwiches. And uh, as any of us would, uh, we, we took our fill of this. And then they brought out the main course. And this is like the entrance to Canaan. It was a rest. And Joshua 23, 1 speaks of it. It was a rest. But it is not the ultimate rest. The rest of heaven and glory that remains. Verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day in Psalm 95 later on. And so there is not only that the wonder of heaven, but the possibility of us entering that rest. Some of you remember the frustrations of trying to find accommodation in Port Rush. In the old days, you would drive round in a car and, and you would look for a B&B for that night. And frequently you would find, especially in the summer, the, the no vacancy sign. And it would frustrate you. Now, now we go online we phone up, we, we try to get tickets, we try to make bookings, and, and sometimes we experience that frustration of the places being filled, no vacancies being available. But that is not the case with the rest of heaven. There is the opportunity, the possibility, the offer, the promise, and the grace of God for us to enter that Sabbath rest of God. And isn't it tragic that 54% of Britons, of our colleagues, of those we rub shoulders with, of those we pass in the street and encounter in our bus, do not believe that this eternal rest exists. They've no interest in this, no thought of this, no desire for this, even though this is being offered to us. Elon Musk is more interested in Twitter than in Mars these days. He's more interested in what is near and what is close and what is tangible and what is manageable. And many of our peers and colleagues are more interested in earth than in heaven. 
in the now than in the future. But for ourselves, what a wonderful promise for us that the rest wasn't filled up in Old Testament times, but that we today have this hope of entering the rest of heaven. And this is a hope we should share. Perhaps the 54% of people who don't believe in heaven or in hell have never had it explained to them the wonders of heaven, the fearfulness of hell. And you and I who have such a hope can take that hope to them and share with them. And perhaps the calendar will be a means that you will choose to use to share that hope with others. The nature of heavenly rest. The possibility of heavenly rest. And thirdly, the entrance into heavenly rest. The writer here sets out why the people couldn't enter the rest in Old Testament times. And in doing so, he clarifies for us, how is it then that heavenly rest, which is being offered where there are vacancies, we can enter into? And this, of course, by faith and by obedience, by faith in in Jesus Christ. He shows us in in verse 2 that the, the people in the Old Testament age could not enter into the promised land because of their unbelief, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is, with Joshua and with Caleb, who believed God's promise who wanted to lead the people into the land. The rest of the community were unbelieving of God's promise. So the writer says in verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. We enter the eternal rest by faith. In Jesus Christ who has done all that is necessary for sinners such as us to enter the holy presence of God by his righteousness, by his blood, by his incarnation and ascension, we by faith in him have the hope of entering that eternal rest. But that faith is evidenced by obedience to God. Again, the writer describes the disobedience of the people in Old Testament times. In verse 6, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 11, that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We come to Jesus. We trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And Jesus changes us on the inside. He dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. And that new life is expressed in a life of submission to him. Jesus has taught us that by our fruits we will be known. We will show that we are a Christian by the lifestyle that we live we will be different from those who do not know Jesus or submit to his lordship or who believe in him. Every day we face the challenge of obedience in our homes. 
we pour the tin of beans into the pan and we begin to heat it up. But this, this, this can remains in our hand. What will we do with this can? Will we leave it sitting on the kitchen shelf? Will we put it in the general waste? Or will we consign it to the, the recycling place as our government requires us to do? Will we obey? And we face that same challenge in obeying God each day. Obeying his word. A mark of those who are going to heaven. Children are faced with this challenge in their home. When they are told to go and tidy their room. Will they obey their parents? And in obeying their parents, will they obey God? Or will they linger? Will they forget? Will they reject the command of their parents? Teenagers are commanded to be holy as God is holy. You have the advantage of being able to use modern technology, something some of us were not brought up with. But it has its dangers, its temptations. But as a Christian, you will obey God. You will watch what sites you visit, what pictures you view. Those going to heaven are marked by obedience. Husbands will love their wives. Wives will submit to their husbands. All of us will pay our tithes. All of us will love one another as Jesus has loved us. We have faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior, but we evidence that faith by a life of obedience and service to him. The nature of heavenly rest. The possibility of heavenly rest. The entrance into heavenly rest. Thus the writer reflects on this eternal rest. He doesn't want us to be neutral or indifferent about getting there. He wants us to be totally committed to arriving in the presence of God. And he does it by two words. One in verse 1 and one in the, the last verse of the paragraph. The one in verse 1 is fear. Let us fear, he says. Lest any of you fail to reach it. Let us fear. Let us look at the example of the people in the Old Testament church who failed to enter into the rest through their unbelief and disobedience. And let us fear of entering that rest. Because not to enter into the eternal rest is to enter the eternal torments. No limbo, no purgatory, no annihilation. Only the rest of heaven or the torments of hell. So let us fear. And secondly, let us strive. In verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest. Brooks explains the word be earnest, labor, show diligence, exert all energy, engage every endeavor, resist. Our temptation to sin, to lose our temper, to steal, to covet, 
to look at porn, to have an affair, to pilfer, to fail to love our wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, to fight the power of indwelling sin in our hearts, to strive to enter into this rest. Not only striving to avoid what is wrong, but to do what is right, to contemplate God's works, to hold our devotions, to encourage one another to learn from others' failures, to share in Christ. Let us not drift. Let us not be neutral. Let us not be indifferent into entering into this rest. The writer says, let us strive to enter this eternal rest, to be filled with joy and peace and love and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and self-control. The French team won't rest on the fact that they won the World Cup the last time. They will strive to win it again. They will give their all. They will labor. They will sweat. They will know fatigue. They will strive to win. And you and I are not to rest on our baptism or on our church membership or on our Christian upbringing. We are to strive, strive with sin, strive with indifference, strive with neutrality, strive with lukewarmness to enter in to the heavenly rest.